Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. This is Volume 44. We are taking our annual look at inductees for the WWE Hall of Fame. I know some of you may be listening to this and thinking, wait a minute, this show is Classic Wrestling Memories. Why are you talking about the 2022 Hall of Fame? Well, most of the inductees, as usual, do fit into the category that we like to talk about. We look at our cutoff period as being the end of the Monday Night War, WCW going out of business, ECW going out of business. That's kind of our cutoff time of what we like to talk about. Anything before that's fair game. And most of the talent we're going to talk about that were at this year's Hall of Fame induction still fall into that category. So we're going to look at the careers of the Steiner brothers, Big Van Vader, and of course the headliner, of The Undertaker, and once again, joining me from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, my co-host and friend, Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know how much longer we do these because we always say, well, these were stars or talents that had their careers in the era that we covered, but as time goes on, it's going to begin. I mean, they've already inducted some. I think their prime was past the Attitude Era. I think we're going to rapidly come to a point where it's nobody. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be everybody's going to be on the the uh, attitude here. They've already inducted like Edge, and mm-hmm. Edge obviously did not start to really have a, a a main event career until after the Attitude Era. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess we'll get, when that bri- when we get to that bridge, we'll burn it down or cross it. We'll decide then. Right, right. So this year's WWE Hall of Fame 2022 class, they had the Steiner brothers, they had Charmel Booker T's wife, who started out as a Nitro girl. They also had the Shad Gaspard winning the posthumous Warrior Award, Big Van Vader, and The Undertaker. I think we'll just kind of go the way WWE did their their order. So I guess we'll start out with the Steiner brothers. And uh, the Steiners, they were coming to prominence. They'd already been around for a while, I think, when I started watching wrestling. I, I was only watching WWE for about a year before I truly started watching WCW. So that kind of... Late 89, early 90 period, I think, is when I started watching WWE with with regularity. And I think in 89, would the Steiners have still been in Memphis at that time, or would they have been working for the Crockett's? No, no. Okay, Rick, of course, is older than Scott, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So he turned pro before Scott. Yeah, and And Rick had a singles career for a while before Scott came along, right? He he did. His his first high-profile spot was as part of Hot Stuff and Hyatt International in the old UWF, the Bill Watts okay. territory. Yeah. And and he was tagging often with Sting, a young Sting, because at that point, the Blade Runners had broken up. Sting had been rechristened Sting and gone to Mid-South or UWF. And and I guess, what was what was Jim Helwig's Blade Runner name? Flat? No, he wasn't Flash. Was Flash, Flash or, or Rock or something like that. Rock, Rock, Rock. He yes. had gone to The Dallas. Ultimate Warrior once went by the name Rock. Think about that for a minute. Right. He, they, they had started in Memphis together as a tag team. Sting went to Mid-South. Mm-hmm. Hellwig, Warrior, went to Dallas in the waning days of world class and was because he was friends with Kerry. They got, he got mm-hmm. along with Kerry because they look at both their bodies. They had similar yeah. workout You could switch routines. the heads off of one body to the other mm-hmm. and they still look the same. And yes, exactly. And they dubbed him the Dingo Warrior. Mm-hmm. And from there, Vince wound up hiring him. Well, then you have the Crockett buyout in 87. I think it was 88. I think the actual buyout was 88. No, no, it had to be at least 87 because Starcade 87 
had a couple of the unification matches in it. Like oh, Dr. Yeah, okay. Death, you're really, talking, you're talking wedding. about the, yeah, you're talking about the Crockett's, Crockett's buying out Bill Watts. Okay. I, for some right, reason, right, I was thinking right. the, uh, you're, you're thinking the Turner, Turner buying Crockett. That right. was, that was it. That was, that was late 88. You're right. Yeah. But this buyout so, of Bill Watts is what eventually led to. Uh, right, right. The buyout of Bill brought Sting, Eddie Gilbert, Missy Hyatt, and Rick Steiner all over and Dr. Death. And they were still heels. And then they made Steiner part of the varsity club. And they turn Sting babyface, and eventually Steiner leaves the Varsity Club and turns babyface. And by that time, they by that point they had turned Doctor Death heel and put him in the 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 uh, Varsity Club. Dan Spivey, who was a member, had left and gone to Japan. So you have Mike Rotunda and Doctor Death and Steiner facing off against them with no tag team partner. Well, at that point, Scott had turned pro and was working in Memphis. So they brought Scott in so that Rick had a tag team partner to face the varsity club. And that was around 89, 90. And that's that's the evolution of the Steiners as a tag team. They started separately as solo guys that worked a lot in tag teams, but not with each other. Right. And then, it, and it, it's a story that tells itself. Rick and Scott both have this legitimate amateur background at Michigan. So they're now going to face the heel, Mike Rotunda, with his legitimate amateur background from Syracuse. And and Doctor Death with his legitimate amateur background in Oklahoma. It kind of it, like I said, pretty easy angle to write. You know what I'm saying? And they're four big guys that can can go and can do. Mike's the smallest, but Mike can go and can do technical. You know what I'm saying? You know? Right, right. And I and I know it happened at some point in Scott's Memphis career. I don't know the exact segment or the exact part, but a brawl breaks out you know, bench-clearing brawl, and Percy Pringle and Scott Steiner, they get into a brawl as part of it. So for a brief moment in time, if you look in the background, no, no, it was it was part of an angle. But that does mean that at some point for a few seconds in this segment, Paul Bearer is kicking the ass of Scott Steiner. Yeah, I'm about to say, <laughs> yeah, that's like, totally a work because <laughs> God rest his soul, William Moody is one of the nicest, sweetest, and nonviolent human beings to ever exist in or out of the wrestling Right. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, and of course, the the Percy Pringle character is just about as 180-degree opposite from Paul Bearer as you can get. But, oh, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, but, but, yeah totally. uh, but back to the Steiners. That's that's how they got their start. I mean, when Scott first started, hell, he was wrestling in, in, in tennis shoes, high-top tennis shoes with his college singlet. He looked anything but like a professional wrestler except for the body. So Rick was always, from because of this history, and, and it was well-known, the Mid-South Territory was big, tough, strong guys. Legitimate tough guys. Mm-hmm. That can be by with the fact that Rick was a little bit more pragmatic than Scott, personality-wise. And he knew the Duggins and the DiBiases and the Dr. Deaths. He was a little bit more respected by the veterans than Scott mm-hmm. was. And it wasn't long after they put them together that Memphis's always had the working deal with, with, with Japanese stuff. So to WCW, they went to Japan to work and got over there immediately too. And that is where Scott developed the Frankensteiner and then came yeah. back to America doing that move. And now the old timers really did. And again, the funny thing about the Frankensteiner, of course, that was the first time I had seen. Now the way Scott Steiner would do it, I think is a little bit different from how a lot of people were doing. I mean, cause there's the difference between the spinning head scissors and kind of, kind of what the, the hurricane Rana, was and how Scott mm-hmm. Steiner did the the Frankensteiner because Scott would whip guys into the ropes first and he would do the jump 
And yes, it was athletic to get up and, and do that jump. But if I understand it right, if you're taking the Frankensteiner, it's more on you to take it than it is mm-hmm. Scott because you have to do the role and Scott just kind of rolls under you, right? Right. The way Scott did it, it was more like a standing drop kick coming off mm-hmm. the ropes. That then he, when he, but instead of kicking you, he hooked his feet around your legs and then snapped. Whereas a Hurricane Ron is more you jump up on onto their onto their shoulders and put your belly and your crotch into their face and then mm-hmm. cut the backflip. I think the, the they both put over the wrestler giving its athleticism, but in different ways. But it wasn't long after that. What? Pretty much after coming back from Japan and doing the, this Frankenstein, they were immediately considered like the top tag team or one of the top tag teams in the world, right. wasn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, uh, 90 or 91, when I started watching them, they were being heralded on WCW TV as one of the greatest tag teams in the world and even in the aftermags. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, wow, they had all these years of experience. And really, that was kind of, I don't, you could make the argument they might not have hit their prime by then. They probably yeah, had. and I see I, that all kind of started at least storyline wise going all the way back to Starcade '89. You remember Starcade '89 was that one that had that that unusual format. Yeah, I, I where like they had that a format. tournament, the Iron Man and the Iron Team match. Yeah, and uh, that's where they had. I, I think it was the Simone SWAT team or the New Wild Samoans. Which I think one of them was Rikishi. I want to say it was. It was um, the New Wild Samoans, and they were yeah. managed by I want to say I think it was, was it Paul Heyman. Heyman at that point. Heyman okay, at that could point, have been, I could have been, okay. But ev- eventually they brought in Oliver Humperdinck. Yeah, but it was the Steiners, the Road Warriors, the Simones. New Wild Simones or the Simone SWAT team. And I, and was Doom the other team or was it? Uh... Doom was the other team. They yeah. had Rock and Roll Express and Midnights at the time, but they were kind of passe. because yeah, this was, since it was 89, this was the whole thing of this is going to be the talent that goes into the 90s is going to be the top team right. of the 1990s. Right. And they did the same thing with singles where it was Sting, Flair, Muda, and Luger, I believe. Luger, right. And that was the first time that the Muda had actually lost on television was that right. was that tournament, which I think they completely wasted Muda there. But the Steiners went over in that, and they went mm-hmm. over by beating the Road Warriors, but not cleanly. Yeah, because if I recall the finish to that, this is just going from memory, but I think the... Road Warriors were going to do the Doomsday device, and I think instead of it, them hitting it like normal, I can't remember if it was Scott or Rick that was under, but it was like they kind of rolled through, and it was like a double pinfall or something to that effect, right? Right. Does that ring a bell? Right, that's right. Yeah, and okay. I think it was, it was declared like a draw, because the way that, that the matches were all done was you had, it was a 10-minute time limit, and how you won determined the points. That you, if you won by pinball or submission, you got like 20 or 25 points. If you won by by count out, you only got like fifteen. If it mm-hmm. was a draw, like both teams got five, and then if you didn't win at all, you know it was nothing. Right, right. And, and it was so a round robin they, tournament. It was not an elimination tournament. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right, the Samoans were in that in that tournament because it was originally supposed to be the skyscrapers. Yeah, of Spivey, yeah. Spivey, and, and 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 Vicious. But Sid was off in Memphis playing softball, feigning an injury at the time, and so Dan had just gone to Japan. Okay. And Mark Callis, who we'll talk about later, had not mm-hmm. come into the company. Right. As me, Mark. And, and, and to make up for the fact, I mean, you still had, like they still had Midnight's in the rock and roll. They just weren't in the tournament. They had Terry Funk as the color commentator with Jim Ross on the singles side. And on the tag side, they had Jim Cornette as the color commentator with Jim Ross. Because it makes sense. Terry just come off this long feud with Flair and was a known single star. And they had Cornette, who was like the manager of champions. Right, of tag champion. That was the really the impetus for the Steiners, though. The whole point of this is this was that whole 
pay-per-view, the impetus of it was to set up both Sting as the, the singles guy of the 90s and the Steiners as the tag team of the 90s. And they did it effectively. And um, it was a strange pay-per-view. Did not do well. The crowd isn't even... The Omni, which this is Atlanta Omni. This is like the Madison Square Garden of Crockett, that mm-hmm. in Greensboro. And it's not even full with the, the pay-per-view stuff. Well, they had switched it to Christmas instead of Thanksgiving. There was a lot of reasons why it happened. Wrestling as a whole was down at the time. But the Steiners were definitely over with the fans that were there. And the Frankensteiner was a major reason why. And this was the springboard. And now they are a top tag team along with the Road Warriors on the babyface side in the Crockett promotion and perceived as one of the best tag teams in the world because they're going to Japan and having success against the top Japanese teams. And let's be honest, Vince has never put a big emphasis on tag team. Right. This is before I, I money Inc. had started. I don't, the natural disasters had, what was the top tag team in, in, at that time for, yeah. for Vince? Uh, in 89, 90, it was probably still demolition. Harf, I would think demolition. Cause Tully, Tully and Arn had left. Right. Heart foundation. Were they still together? They maybe. Yeah, I think this would have been around the time they would have turned babyface, or or maybe a little bit after they turned babyface. Yeah, because Arn and Tully are gone. The Bulldogs are gone. Before Money, before Natural Disasters, before the Nasty. Conquistadors? <laughs> yeah, Can-Ams were gone. Strike Force was broken up. He had good tag teams at one time. They just all were gone at that point, you know? Yeah, <laughs> actually, I, I think in late 89, that would have been around the time uh, Haku and Andre the Giant were the Tag champions, colossal I would connection. Think. Colossal connection, yeah. And that's that was just sad because Andre couldn't even freaking move. He couldn't move at all. Tonga, King Tonga was doing all the all the all the heavy lifting because right. he was still young and could go. Right. But then they they stayed with uh, WCW for a couple of years. I, I know they were still there in ninety two. I want to say ninety two was around the time they made the jump to the Titan and Vince, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was it was even though they were a top team. In, in WCW, and like I said, in one of the top, they, were, they were one of the top foreign teams in Japan. They pretty much plowed through everybody that they could WCW at that point. They were in storyline associated with staying in the top baby faces. They, the, the horsemen were not what they had been. Doom had broken up, who they had a great feud with early on. The Doom Steiner Brothers feud was great because that's just four big dudes smashing into yeah. each other. And all, and all like four that? of them can go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. How can you not like that? Yeah. That's still it's one of it's my not just a hoss feet. fight, it's a four man hoss fight. That is still one of my favorite angles, feuds of that era of wrestling. That's just, was, that's just four, four guys that, yeah. I had the Road Warriors already left to go on events at that point, too. Yeah, it was 1990, I think, when, when they left because I remember their debut. In WWE. So, I mean, for the Steiners to go to, to Vince at that time totally made sense. Mm-hmm. Vince probably offered them more money. Well, Scott Steiner certainly had the look that Vince liked. We, we all know how much Vince liked his muscles. Oh, yeah. And they, did, they didn't have guaranteed contracts back then in the WWE or WWF at the time. But like Flair had said, you haven't gone there a couple years earlier. You shook Vince's hand. He, he said, you're good. I guarantee you're going to make this month, this much money, if not more. And every guy that, that had gone up there that the Steiners knew, that had been true, whether it was Arn and Tully, whether it was Flair, every mm-hmm. guy that had gone up there on that handshake deal, Vince was true to his word. So why wouldn't they believe him, right? Yeah, I heard that about the Road Warriors, too. They, they had said something yeah, to the effect yeah. of he was actually the promoter that treated them the best. And this means they were walking away from guaranteed money because the, the guaranteed money was started by Crockett with, with the Steiners, the Midnight Express, and Luger and Sting mm-hmm. in the late 80s. 
And to say their WWF run was less than what the, either them or Vince thought it would be, I think would be a, an understatement. Don't you agree? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting a run similar to like what Demolition had when Demolition had that, what, 18 month reign or something like that. And I think yeah. and they, they, they like, they won them as heels and then turned baby face. And then I don't think they turned again in the same title run, but it's like they, they had the belt so long that they had an impressive reign, both as baby faces and as heels in the same mm-hmm. run. I think the, one of the biggest issues for me on that run that they, I mean, because they got the belts. They hadn't been there but a few months when they yeah, won pretty quickly. the belts on them. Yeah, because I think you know? they'd feuded with Money Incorporated at, at the time because this was shortly before, yeah. uh, I think, Ted left for All Japan. Right. And the Steiners, just their gimmick didn't fit the WWE cartoon world. Mm-hmm. These were guys who played up their legitimate amateur wrestling backgrounds. They had the the body that Vince liked, but they weren't cartoonish in character. They were just two tough guys. That yeah, but the only thing thing. cartoonish that might have fit is because it was the early 90s and they had those really loud colored singlets. Right. But that was kind of the style of the time. The neon colors were big back then, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think Rick and Scott just, they were, they were a round peg trying to fit in a square hole in the WWF in that era. They were... Two guys that did this very unique blend of, of of technical amateur wrestling mixed with power moves. And Vince's fans for years and years had never been conditioned to see anything like that. Whereas that style in ring was much more suited for the Southern-based WCW. What the Steiners are doing was the natural evolution of stuff that fans in Florida and the Carolinas and Texas and Mid-South have been seeing for years. Whereas... That wasn't so true. You can see how Jack Briscoe to Harley Race to Ric Flair leads to the Steiners. There's You cannot see Bruno to Backlund to Hogan to Steiners. You see what I'm right. saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a disconnect there. There is mm-hmm. a major disconnect there. So, yeah. So, they were only up at Vince for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I think it was it, 92 to um, maybe 94, prob- probably mm-hmm. 93. Mm-hmm. And when they come back, they like it's like they never left. They're right. right back at the top of the card. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember they came back to WCW right about the time the Nitro era started, and uh, they were part of the NWO thing. And they had that split. I want to say it was '98, maybe mm-hmm. when when they did the thing where Scott turned and and joined the NWO. Right. And one of the funny things about the Scott Steiner heel turn then, I know they had teased the Scott Steiner heel turn shortly before they jumped to WWE and. 92 whenever it was they they were teasing dissension between them but they both left for i think they had a run in japan and then went to wwf but i I could be wrong about that yeah i I think they were working out that their 90 day no compete yeah but when you saw scott steiner when he did when he did that turn and joined the nwo we all remember big papa pump and i'll i'll put this in writing I'll, i'll say it probably as long as i live that if i had the choice i would take big papa pump even in the kind of semi-immobile state he had later in his career, I'll take that over the All-American Scott Steiner, whose big gimmick was that he wrestled good. But you, when you see him doing that heel turn, it was, what, about a year probably before he truly started becoming the big Papa Pump that we know now. It's right. like he he didn't seem to quite have the confidence with the new character. And then after a few months, and he started getting comfortable and then we got the classic promos like the the math and the all that stuff we got in, yeah. in TNA and WWE. Right. And, and and to play on what I just talked about, that Scott Steiner would have worked in Vince McMahon's world. Right, right. He has openly said, Scott has said he modeled his promos and his look after 
after not Superstar Graham. Yeah, Superstar Billy Graham. Well, we know how big a star Superstar Billy Graham was up north, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I will play a promo here. This was actually from their TNA run, which I know goes after that 2000 Cut cutoff, off. 2001 <laughs> cutoff. But it's classic Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner. So I'm just going to let the man speak for himself. Team 3D, you guys are out of your mind. Coming to Atlanta, Georgia, the place that the Steiner brothers got their start in professional wrestling. You guys are out of your mind making it a table match because tonight we're going to beat you at your own game. And after it's all said and done, you're going to be taking splinters out of your fat asses all night long because you got some fat asses. The only chance you have, you have no chance, but you had a chance, is that you can run Nicky Split. Because you can't run because you got some fat asses. And after it's sun done, we're going to have a tailgate party for all my freaks out there in Atlanta, Georgia. That pretty much sums up Big Papa Pump right there. He's the ultimate muscle head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as they both wound down, their their in-ring careers they have both rick and scott have gone separate ways and been quite successful in the private sector rick has gone into politics and mm-hmm. his degrees in education so it made sense he ran for uh the school board and there there he lives in in georgia and i believe it was what two terms i think so and i, and I know scott steiner owns a couple businesses now scott steiner owns a shoney's restaurant yeah. in ackworth georgia <laughs> Now I have now, this visual of ahead. Scott Steiner with his sunglasses and his dyed beard and all that, and he's cooking back behind the counter. He's got the chef's hat on, and yeah, and then right. somebody comes in with their order, and he's like, I ain't cooking this. <laughs> you know, let's go throw you got a fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about Scott's Shoney's is my understanding. Now, once again, Scott playing into his strengths, his degree from Michigan was in business. He owns the most successful franchise, Shoney's franchise in the entire franchise, the wow. entire corporation. And it is unique Shoney's. Half of the Shoney's is your traditional breakfast bar, buffet, standard Shoney's fit. The other half has more high-end, like, people that have been to culinary school cooked stuff that, like, are unique entrees to no other Shoney's but that one and a full bar. It is the only Shoney's that has a liquor license in the entire franchise as well. And he centers all that around a lobby that is filled with wrestling memorabilia from his career. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And too. so it, it's a very unique, but once again, as savvy businessman, right? I do not think Scott is as dumb as his character was. Right. And, I, and we we know Rick is. Rick played almost this muscle-headed buffoon as a dog-faced gremlin. But you don't you don't get a degree in education if you're stupid. Yeah, and, and you don't become, you don't truly become an all-American. Being stupid. It's if I understand it right, it's more than just your athletic uh, right. It prowess. is. It is. As a matter of fact, if you listen to Conrad Thompson's podcast, especially those that deal with WCW talent like Shivani and and Flair and stuff, yeah, Jared, he yeah. jokingly calls calls Scott Steiner ham cute <laughs> because much like you, he says he can envision Big Papa Pump going out to the salad bar and is so shonies and going, "Damn it, we need more ham cubes. We're running low." <laughs> so he, he he jokingly calls him calls him ham cute and. He's had to tell fans in the past, look, I like Scott. We're friends. I'm just I'm just choking his chain. I'm just ribbing him. But anyway, I, I think one of the things along with their retirement from the business has been, especially Scott, has been extremely vocal because they both do still work some independence to mm-hmm. pick up extra, extra money. Scott has famously been quite vocal about his feelings towards some of the major players, including Vince McMahon and especially Triple H in the business today. 
Scott had that very unsuccessful brief run after Vince's buyout of WCW as Big Papa Punk, where he feuded with Triple H. And he has been less than glowing of his assessment of Triple H and his abilities. I'm sure you're you're very well aware of what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because I know that was one of the things that people were concerned about. Yes. With him That's where I was headed. That's getting, where I was headed with this. <laughs> you know, the Hall of Fame induction. And, I, and I'm just like, no, these guys are professionals. They know what they're going to say. They They know not to go into business for themselves on a stage like that. My thoughts on that were this, that. Of course, we all know that Rick's son is now currently a star in NXT as Braun right. Breaker. And my gosh, does he look and I have the exact same body type as his father oh, did. Yeah, he, 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 I, I'm not even joking when I say this. I saw him walk out for a match and I thought he looked like the Nintendo 64 version of his dad from the old <laughs> uh, WWE Nitro 64 game. He even has the same, the same mustache. Right. And the same shoulders. You know, <laughs> so. Same shit. Yeah, he's the same build on Yeah, you're exactly on his traps. Yeah. Trapezius muscles. And Scott and Rick, for whatever you think about them, and I'll get to my personal opinion on the Steiners as, as, as talents in a second. They seem to be very, very good father and uncle. Neither of them, especially Scott, is going to do anything that would that could be come back, blow back on his nephew. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is I don't think Scott needs to say anymore else if hunter or anybody else wants to know how he feels about things it's all out there he ain't hit it so what good does it do to voice those opinions in that format and in that forum right on that stage they're there to be honored as the 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 groundbreaking tag team that they were and rightfully so they deserve to go in they're going to be gracious like you said be professional accept their award talk about that and be go on He's not going to go into business for him. a shoot interview is the time to do that. Scott's already done that many, many times. This is not right. the time or the place. And Scott is professional enough to understand that. So I always thought those fears were, were there. We had the similar thing when, 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 when Corny inducted mm -hmm. Ricky and Robert a few years ago, remember? Right. right. Was, we, we knew Corny, Corny wasn't going to do that. Yeah. Oh, Corny's he's, he's, he's a passionate guy. He's always ragging on the WWE. He's going to go into business for himself. No, he's not. He right. loves Ricky and Robert too much to do that. And he realizes this is at the time and place. And if you want to know his opinion on those things, it's really easy to find. You don't need, to, he doesn't need to do it there. It's already been said. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do wish they'd have given the Steiners a little bit longer to speak, but I think what we got was, was a, about what I expected. I think, especially in light of like remember the year that, 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 that Flair went in and he just went on and on and on. They have gotten a lot better since then at controlling the time the guys take to accept and condensing. We've said it before. The Hall of Fame now is as much a television show as it is an actual induction. Right. You agree? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they have a little more time for stuff now that they're on their their own network and Peacock and, and all that. But, yeah, they there there was a time when the inductions were going on like four or five hours, and then they tried streamlining it a bit, and then it, it seemed too, too scripted. We're talking about time people having time, we'll, we'll get to Taker, but Taker's speech was like 45 minutes. But at the same time, right. it's Taker. I'm not going to tell him to wind things up. Yeah, the best example of that was when they had to send Kane out to, to cut off to Mr. T Mr. when he Mr. got ducked into the celebrity yeah. <laughs> And then T realized he, had he was taking too long. To, oh, okay, my bad. <laughs> right. it, it was kind of unusual to see Mr. T be kind of humble for once. And, and, and let, let's be honest, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. At least, at least it was Mr. T, so it was entertaining, right? Right, right. And I remember people talking about, oh, we didn't mention WWE or anything like that. And I'm like, you should automatically know by now 
if you hand Mr. T a microphone, he's going to talk about God. And he's going to talk about mama. That's just who right. Mr. T is. And, and, and who's going to cut off anybody when he's praising his mom? That's come right. on. Is <laughs> <laughs> obviously Mr. T loves his mama and that's great. Mm-hmm. So, yep. but I think Braun introdu- inducted them. Made sense. I think Scott and Rick were both brief, but mm-hmm. to the point, I wish they'd had a little bit longer. But even Scott went a little bit into his big Papa Pump persona for a second there. So we got, I think, all aspects. I have to admit, they both look incredibly great for their age, but their years in the ring. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. These guys are pushing 60 by now. And if you didn't I mean, know who they were. they're walking a little slower. It's obvious. They're not as spry as they usually. They still, I think, still kick the ass of about 80% of the people in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> with no problem. Not even break a sweat when they did it. I've heard for years that... As big, mean, and scary as Scott Steiner looks, Rick's the one to be afraid of. Yes. Now, now, my personal opinion on the Steiners, and then I'll leave the Steiners with this. I'll let you give your opinion. For me, though I have said, and I and I stand by, they totally deserve to be Hall of Fame. They are Hall of Fame. They were yeah. one of the top tag teams in the world in every promotion they went to for years. I was never the big fan of the Steiners that everyone else was. I probably have a different perspective because of my time in the ring, Rick and Scott, especially Scott, were very limited. They didn't bump a lot. They didn't sell a lot, which with their size, they probably shouldn't. But even when they should, I know guys, bigger guys that were better, like Undertaker and, and Vader, who we'll both talk about later. Scott and Rick were two muscle dudes who had really, really cool, unique-looking offense, which is good in a babyface team, really good in a babyface team. But... They are never going to be in the same breath to me of a Flair or a Steamboat or, or or even The Rock or Austin or Undertaker because those guys were just more complete packages. Rick and Scott were not great promos. And Scott, as much as we were just singing the praises of the Big Pop Pump, it was more because of the, the over-the-top silliness that made him entertaining than it was actually being a good promo. Right. It, there's nothing about Scott's promos that made me want to buy a ticket. He, he can do that money promo like you talk about, you know? Right. He'd say that silly stuff, but nobody in their right mind would walk up to him and tell him he's saying silly stuff. Right. So all those things, I, I think, to me, it shows the line between somebody who understands the business and is in the business to just the fan. Is that the fans love them because they did cool stuff. People in the business realized how limited the Steiners were and... That you can only do so much, which probably also explains why they never had long runs. A couple years in WCW, they're gone. A couple years of Vince, and they're gone. A couple years back in WCW, and they're having to split the team yeah. up. Yeah, and then, it's, and then it's, you it's, had their couple of New Japan runs in there, too. Right. Whereas, take a Harley race. Take a Ric Flair. Take a Ricky Steamboat. Take a Undertaker. Their inability to recreate themselves or have a gimmick that was sustainable is what caused that. Whereas, Harley was Harley for what? 30 years. Flair mm-hmm. was Flair. Hell, Flair's getting ready to wrestle again. Mm-hmm. At 70, he's up doing the same gimmick. And he's going to take that slam off the top rope. He's going to go to the top well, rope, already, get caught. He's already and, said yeah. he is. He's <laughs> already posted on his on his Facebook page. This will happen July 31st. <laughs> and it's just a series of him getting slammed off the top over throughout his career. You know, it's like, And he's also did the same for the, for, the, for the face flop. But my whole point is Harley, Flair, Steamboat. Bret Hart, all these guys did this pretty much the same thing for what, 20, 30, 40 years. And it was still entertaining. And it's still, the Steiners never lasted anywhere very long. So I want people to understand I don't hate the Steiners. I, I, I like the Steiners. I love what they did for, for the business. They deserve to be Hall of Famers. 
But when you when you start talking, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. No, one of the most dominant tag teams, one of the most over tag teams of all time. But don't they don't hold a candle to the teams that I think look the Rock and Roll Express are re- wrestling Ric Flair in that in that same match we're talking about. This is the 40th year Ricky and Robert have been tagging together. And they've been doing the same thing for 40 years. And they're still top draw, whatever company to go to. Think about that. I think I think you see the think you see the difference, right? Yeah. The only thing I could add to that, and this is just my speculation more than knowledge, but you know, talking about how they were only in places for a year or two and then leaving, I can't help but equate it to being kind of similar to back in the territory days of Andre the Giant, where he didn't stay around too long because eventually you have to beat him. And yes, they did lose yes. titles, but I think that may have been part of it. If they stayed too long at uh, a particular promotion, they'd get beat a few times and then they're just another tag team. I don't know if that's part of it or if that's just me trying to read too much into it. Now, I say all that, but I want to leave with if you if you if by some chance you've been under a rock for the last 40 years and why you're listening to this particular podcast, if this is true, I don't know. But if you've never seen the, the Steiners wrestle, I think one of the best matches they had that's easily accessible would be Super Brawl. The main event is Super Brawl 2, where it was a baby, baby match, the Steiners against Sting and Luger. Yes. That, yeah, that match was incredible. Yes, I believe that was the when Nikita Koloff interfered, I want to say. I believe you're correct. Uh, I think, I yeah, correct. and that's just going by memory. But I think that was the PWI match of the year. And, like, finished in the top five for match of the year in, the, in, in, in Meltzer's Observer. So this is one that both from a work standpoint and from a smart mark standpoint was was a universally praised match. And, and you've said before that babyface versus babyface is actually much more difficult to do than heel versus heel because you risk dividing the crowd. Yep. And if you want to see what the Steiners at their zenith, at their 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 prime brought, and I think that was what, 91 or 92, that, yeah. that Super Bowl. Yeah, I think it was 91. But, but it's, it's on the Peacock under the WCW pay-per-view drop down. So... That would be my suggestion of a match to watch if you want to get an idea of how good the Steiners were. Yeah. Can you think of another match you would suggest? Yeah, I would probably have to think maybe the WCW run in the Nitro era because I know that it's, I really like that early Nitro because they had all those great tag teams. So they had matches with the Nasty Boys, with the Outsiders. Pretty much, pretty much. I, I think they might have had a match with Sting and Luger at that time as well, unless that was a time Luger was heel. I don't know. I, I'm thinking they substituted Booker T. I think that's what I'm thinking about is the, the match. Uh, it was like they were going to do a match between the Steiners and Sting and Luger, but Luger was a heel and suspiciously disappeared. And then Booker T, I think, filled in. But I still remember liking that yeah. one as well. But I can't uh, remember if it was a Saturday night match or if it was a Nitro. But I, I remember seeing a really good Harlem Heat Steiners match at one mm-hmm. time, point two. Yeah. Well, Once again, I, four big dudes smashing each other and can they yeah. all go? So there yeah, you go, right? Four, four man hoss fight. So, but to go <laughs> yeah. over some of the credentials here, obviously they, they were two time WWE champions in the early 90s. They had the IWGP titles for New Japan twice. And then they had the WCW tag titles. They also had the U- U.S. tag titles, if you remember the U.S. tag titles in the early 90s. Yes. And then I believe they had the Mid-Atlantic tag titles uh, would have been the 80s. Because if, if I recall correctly, Mid-Atlantic wrestling and the NWA Mid-Atlantic tag team champion, that's what was retroactively turned into the history of the WCW tag titles, if I recall correctly, right? No, no. Oh, it no, wasn't? Okay. No. The tag team titles were the secondary tag team titles in the old Crockett territory. 
and they had their own version of the world tag team. The, okay. the titles that like the Russians and the Horsemen and the, and the Midnights and the Rock and Rolls all had, that mm-hmm. was the NWA world tag team title. It was just the Mid-Atlantic version. Okay. So that's why that. when you look when you look at a lot of title histories, especially for tag titles and also for the U.S. title, those being the two most common, you will often see in parentheses next to it, Texas version, Mid-Atlantic version, mm-hmm. Los Angeles version. And so what is considered the WCW World Tag Team titles was their roots go back to the Mid-Atlantic version of the World Tag Team titles. Okay. The Mid-Atlantic title was the secondary title, and they just got rid of it, just like they got rid of the Mid-Atlantic singles title as well. Now, the Mid-Atlantic television title is what morphed into the television title, which is what morphed into the world television title. Very confusing, mm-hmm. I know, but it is what it is. <laughs> right. If all you doggone marks are going to quit being such marks for belts, and titles, <laughs> this wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Now, now we will talk about Charmel here. I know she didn't really have much of an in-ring career. She was a character for the most part, but she did get her start as a Nitro girl under the name Storm, like the X-Men character. And she actually left the Nitro girls before they broke up, if I recall correctly. Because the main thing I remember her, at least as far as being an on-screen character in WCW is she was a manager for Prince Iakea and mm. Prince Iakea had turned heel and then basically had a, had a, a Prince gimmick as in singer yeah. Prince. Uh, yeah. He was like, yeah, the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea to, to play off the Prince name change. Right. And, and then she did join her husband Booker T as his manager. And she's kind of been off and on ever since then, as far as the, the WWE run. So she really didn't wrestle much, but she definitely was good at playing characters. And I think it's also worth mentioning that in real life, both she and Booker, they have several businesses to their names, much like Scott Steiner did. But if I recall correctly, Charmel actually uh, owned several businesses like before she became a, uh, a WWE name, if I'm not mistaken. I think, that's, I think I've heard that before, too. She yeah. strikes me as a savvy person, you know, businesswoman. She was a, a, a Miss Black USA or Miss Black America. And... Once again, much like the All-American, you just brought up earlier with the Steiners, those beauty pageants, there's often more going on and they're just looking pretty in a bathing suit. Right. They, they're, they're, they have to be smart. They have to, most of them are college students or college grads. There is a, a question and answer section in almost all of them. So there's, they might be a little bit socially inept because they kind of live in their own little fantasy class, but they're not dumb. And I think Charmel's success as a businesswoman before and after her run in wrestling probably speaks to that more than anything else I, I could say. My thoughts on Charmel going in, because I get asked, it seems like every year there's always that one inductee that people are like, eh, I don't know, and she was the one in this class. Mm-hmm. My look on this, first and foremost, any opportunity I get, I get to see Booker T, I'm happy for, because he's entertaining as hell. And I, I like the fact that he brought up, in his introduction and induction of her that this was even though he wasn't going in this was kind of like a third time for him because it, mm-hmm. it was his wife and and it was her work with him as king booker that really solidified her induction I, i've said it before and i'll say it again our listeners know i have a long history with the the top women stars in the business from the 70s and, and mid 80s and you just have to realize going back to this idea that it's a television show Vince McMahon has decided he's going to have these certain things met every year. He's going to have one tag team go in. He's going to have one woman go in. He's going to have one person of color go in. He's going to have one person go in posthumous. I understand that concept for 
the few listeners we have that don't know, on my personal Facebook, I post a different musical post every day. And I have each day in my own mind themed as to what that particular uh, genre is going to be focused on that day. That helps me not be repetitive in my own mind and make sure that I don't double up or go too heavy on one particular genre or artist. This concept, I think, is why part of why Vince does what he did and the way right. he does it. Well, Charmel kind of, she checks two boxes for him here. She's a person of color and she's the woman. And knowing what's going on with a lot of those women stars from the era that I'm friends with, all the ones Vince is going to put in, most of them or a large number of them are either controversial characters, did not have a Hall of Fame career, or are involved in that long-running lawsuit about concussion syndrome. So Vince is just not going to put them in until they're, they're dead. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, that leaves only a few other eras of women wrestlers and women in the business to go in. That is the Attitude Era. Well, he's put about everybody that's Hall of Fame worthy from the Attitude Era in already. And then the next era is the one we're currently on now, what Charmel comes from. The, I think they would call it the Ruthless Aggression Era, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's pretty much put in all the girls, I think, that were in-ring competitors from that era. So that naturally leads to now valets and managers going in. So Charmel is part of that class. And whether you agree on it or not, Charmel going in, very similarly to The Godfather, we pointed out The Godfather was a major part of the Attitude Era. The character Mm -hmm. itself was like the physical embodiment of what the Attitude Era was. Well, Charmel and her character is kind of a physical embodiment of that era of WCW, of WWE, of Ruthless Aggression. Yeah. And she's tied to a, a, you know, Booker, who was a Hall of Famer, rightfully so, mm-hmm. and a, a, a former main eventer. So it is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It is what it is. I, I can think of a lot less worthy women that they could have put in, and they didn't. So what say ye on, on, on my summation there? Yeah, she definitely left her mark. I, I think, like you said, the, the time she had with Booker as king and queen, that's probably what she's going to be most remembered for. And this may be a little controversial to say, might get a little little bit of heat to to say it, but I don't think her career, at least as far as in front of the camera, was that much longer than Elizabeth's when you think about it. Elizabeth was right. best remembered for being next to Macho Man, and I don't think too many people would deny that putting Elizabeth in the Hall of Fame. So mm-hmm. I think I think it's a fair comparison. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. Now, we can, we can sit there and argue for two whole more episodes about Savage's career versus Booker's. Right. And I would probably tend to lean on the fact that as much as I love Booker, Savage's career was more impressive and longer. Right. But boy, but, you talk about a fantasy matchup of both of them in their prime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine the promos? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about putting butts in the seats, right? Talking people mm-hmm. in the building. Those two would do it if they had a good storyline. But yes, yeah, so I got no problems. And when it comes to women going in, just re- next year when they announce whoever the female is going in, remember what I just said about what Vince does, why he does it, why a woman goes every year, and what women are left on the table. So, All right, moving on. We'll next up. We do have Big Van Vader now. To be honest, we're not really going to spend that much time on Vader, not because he isn't important. Obviously, he, he, he'd he be in a Hall of Fame, and I think, in anybody's book. But mm-hmm. we actually went into a lot of detail on his career in Volume 21, shortly after uh, he, he had passed. So 
my first memories of Vader were when he was being featured in WCW. I've said before, one of my favorite matches of all time was the Great American Bash match between him and Sting for the world title, where Vader won the world title. And that's yeah, really what kind of... didn't he? Yeah, and, and, he, and he won it in a way where it was clean. You could say it was technically clean, but you still wanted to see the rematch. And right. it really opened up my eyes to kind of more how hard-hitting the WCW style was. And I, I can't remember if this was when Watts was booking or if this was after Watts had left, but it very much was a much more realistic style and just just seemed more interesting. This is around the time I was seeing Bret Hart basically wrestle the same match every week with, with the same five moves that he that he would do in a setup before using the sharpshooter and stuff like five that. Five moves of doom. Right. And then I, I would see this and I fully expected Sting to win because babyface hero and all that. And then not only does the heel win, he basically wins clean. You know, he didn't cheat to win. It was a misstep by Sting. That was a finish. And we even did that whole pay-per-view as another volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. So the, the other thing that I would mention about Vader is probably the most impressive thing about his career is he held three world titles at the same time, not only just on the same time, but they were on different continents. Think about that for a minute. So not only was he holding titles in different promotions, there were different promotions on different continents. Yeah. Who inducted him again? I can't remember. I believe it was his family. I, I, I want to say. I think it was. Yeah, his, I think you're uh, right. Yeah, I think it was his son and his and his wife. And it, that's fitting. But I still feel like they missed a missed an opportunity to either have Stan return the favor because he inducted Stan Hansen a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And you know my feelings on Stan Hansen and how. I want more people to see that loving grandfather stand that we saw that when he was inducted mm -hmm. to understand that there's way much more to Stan Hansen than the, the, the tobacco chewing and yep. cowboy redneck that fat wife and nine kids. And yeah. yeah, you're right. There's a lot more to Stan Hansen. So that's a personal thing. I also think they missed a chance to have Cornette induct him. Cornette has proven through his induction of the rock and roll express that you give him a mic, a live mic. He's going to be professional. And he did manage Leon when he was in the WWE, but there might have been that fear that what we were talking about earlier, how they kind of try to condense it now and keep it within time constraints. Corny can get a little long-winded. And so if you're going to not choose one of the two of them having the man's family, since it's posthumous especially, totally makes sense to me. Right, definitely. But I think we both agreed long overdue. Should have yeah. gone in years ago. Yeah, he should have gone in when he was still with us because there were people petitioning that, I think, even before he had announced the heart condition. There were people like around 2010 that were saying he should he should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I think personally, a perfect time. When he inducted Stan, he should have been Stan inducting him then. And yeah, Stan should have gone in earlier than yeah. that based on his run with, with Bruno in the 70s. But that's just me. Um, that's my personal issues there, but I digress. Yeah, I, I agree. You, know, you do the thing where Vader inducted Stan, and then the following year you have Stan induct Vader. That, that probably would have been uh, very poetic there. Uh, yeah, and especially now that Bobby's gone, are we not waiting for Ricky and Robert to induct the Midnights? That needs to happen. <laughs> we agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's what I thought was going to happen when Corny inducted the, the Rock and Rolls. They also had the Warrior Award, for which is a bravery. And, of course, we it was I think it was about two years ago that Shad Gaspard lost his life swimming. And the main thing about that that I think people remember is there were people trying to rush to his rescue and he made sure they got to his son first, which I think any father would have done in that in that position. But unfortunately, he did not get rescued. And he got swept up in, in a tide. So it's a, it's a very sad story. But I think it 
speaks for who he was and really how much a father he was, that literally his life is in balance and he wants his, his son to go before him. It's too bad they couldn't have gotten them both, but I, I don't think you can find better bravery than putting others in front of yourself, uh, literally in the face of death. No. I, you know, I, I have publicly here on this very podcast bemoaned the Warrior Award. More Dana Warriors involvement. But this year was fitting. It, I know there were a lot of people that were like, oh, finally, he should have gone in last year. And the only thing I could say about there was two things I could say about this induction. One, I think the Warrior Award, more than any other inductee every year, is something that is planned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because for right or for wrong, it is used by the company as for PR. And so a lot of times the inductees, especially from the past, have been individuals that were courageous in the face of terminal illnesses as a thing like that. A lot of arrangements have to be made for individuals like that. So that, and because Dana Warrior is personally involved in the, in the vetting process for the inductees, I get why Shad didn't go in last year right after his untimely death. They probably had already picked whoever, I can't remember who went in last year. They probably had already picked that person and already worked out the details. So it would be kind of crappy to, to tell them, well, no, we're going to push you back. I, th- I think so, you're right with that. They probably already had it picked out. Yeah. So I think people need to just chill. And then you also got situation of 20 and 2020 and 2021 being combined because of the COVID stuff. So there were a lot of things that went into that. Uh, I think uh, where, where Shad Gaspard is concerned, I think they did it as soon as they could based on what I just talked about. It is obviously sad that he earned it the way he earned it, but definitely deserving. Of it. Yeah. And that leads me to the second point. It was typical of the heartstring tugging that they try to do with the Warrior Award, seeing his young son whose life was saved by his father up there receiving it for him was that was heartwarming and 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 it it it, look i've bemoaned publicly dana warrior seeming kind of dumb and fake i think she sincerely felt for shad's widow for shad's son and her giving him that award and her emotionally being moved i think was very very sincere she her husband and and her 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 children's father died young She, she of all people understands what it's like to grieve and to, and to lose somebody at a young age. So that was nice. It's a reminder that wrestling works best when it's emotional. This was a real emotional thing. So it is what it is. Now watch them screw it up next year and put somebody in, and I'm going to be right back to complain about Tatum Warrior. But this year, I, I will not. I will not. So yeah. anyway. I think you bring up a good point there. Yeah, they might have had that person selected in 2021. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a long time. WWE employee, somebody that worked backstage, which is actually what the warrior himself had. Yeah, he wanted it to be about people he didn't see in front of the camera. But remember, back in 2021, that was kind of a hybrid of 2020 and 2021 because there was still the COVID lockdown, so they didn't even have a proper ceremony. It was all just prepackaged video. So now that they have just year, Davy Boy went in in 2020, but he was part of that deal, right? I think so, yeah. And that was when they, they were going to have the NWO go in in 2020 as well. Mm-hmm. But the, this year, they were back to the traditional ceremony in front of a crowd, live on TV. So I think in hindsight, it's actually better that they did it now with Shad in front of an audience on live TV uh, as it as it uh, was for years, rather than simply have it being 
a basically a video package that did not air in front of an audience or on the network. It was just the the, the 2021 Hall of Fame. It felt like a highlight reel trying to watch it. So I think it's better that kind of they did it in front of a in front of a paying audience. Well, I ask you this question. I've been in and ask it the whole time we've been recording here. They went back to that that setup that they I think it started in 2019. The infamous fan attacking Bret Hart and when the Hart Foundation was inducted where they have they have it in a ring where they just take down the ring the ropes on one side mm-hmm. and they have it in the same venue that Mania is going to be at what are your thoughts on that i prefer having a crowd in some sort of stage i think in hindsight with what happened with Brett was the mistake they made was there was a portion of the crowd that he had his back turned and i think that's where the guy ran from right yeah, um, yeah but my understanding and 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 i understand this cuz not trying to make any of our listeners mad I understand things about the wrestling business in, in, in a way, or at least look at things that you probably as fans don't think about. The extra money it costs to rent the venue that they would have it in, the stage setup you're talking about. They either had to do that to rent a separate venue and then set it up and tear it down, knowing they had to turn right back around the next day and do all that work for WrestleMania, or hold it in the same building that they were going to hold WrestleMania in and then work to set all that up, that that staging up for, for the Hall of Fame, then tear it all down. Their ring crew were going to sleep for like three days straight if they did that. Their technical crew. Right. And that's so the type of thing it. they had to know when they signed up for that job that, yeah, you're probably going to have mm. to, to do some marathon works for days at a time. Jim Ross jokes about uh, on the, when he was doing those five, how long is WrestleMania now? But he's a oftenly joke. He realized when they went to that, being the only, being the, the play-by-play guy, don't drink coffee that morning. Sip your liquids very, very slowly. And wear dark pants. And mm. and even as openly admitted, there might have been uh, a pair of adult diapers once or twice involved. Because you right. ain't getting up to go to a bathroom. It's that simple. But when you deal with those logistical things, which having run some shows and helped run shows, I understand. It, even then at a smaller scale, it makes sense that they're going to do it this way. Now you already have the ring set up. You just loosen the ropes. Take one side down. All your crew has to do is put that one side of the, of the ropes up. It is interesting that the WWE can do that because why would any of you understand how a ring gets set up. Obviously I do. It's usually just three sets of ropes that have the pads and the turnbuckles on them. And you just hook them up. They've got to go some work to do it aesthetically the way they do it. You know, those ropes, I don't want a long discussion. Part of why I make guys tear down and set up rings when they get into the business. because it's the way I was done. When you understand how a ring is set up, you understand why you're supposed to work in a ring the way you do. But suffice it to say, Taking one side of the ring ropes down without taking down the other three sides is not easy, but it's still easier than what I was just talking about with the tearing down the whole staging and having to set the ring up. So I think that's why they do it. I don't think they're going to go back to the other way. I like you prefer the other way, but I also understand logistically. I I will say this. They are missing out by not having Jerry Lawler still host because it just nothing against Corey Graves. What do those two young announcers, what about them screams, legends, and the history of the business? Nothing. Right. At least having an old-timer like Jerry, he screams history of the business, doesn't he? Yeah. And, and he I is remember, part of the history of the business. And I remember him saying uh, when they would do the red carpet or whatever, he would say, this is one of my favorite nights of the year. And I absolutely believe him when he says that because he probably sees friends he doesn't see for the rest of the year. That might be the only weekend he sees them. And there is enough guys in the good graces of the company from the the 80s and the 90s that are good on the microphone that are that are good talkers 
that would follow marching orders that scream history that they should be calling on instead of young talent. That's just my opinion. Are you telling me they couldn't get, I don't know, who could they get besides Lawler? They could get Triple H. Mm-hmm. They could get Booker. Yeah. You know, they could get any of a list of former Hall of Famers. JBL, JBL be yeah. great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Get old talent that can talk and that screams history of the business and says, this is not a personal knock on Corey Graves. It's not at all. He just doesn't scream history of the business like all these other guys I just know. Yeah. Glenn Jacobs, if, uh, if he isn't busy being a mayor that week. Right. <laughs> we know I, he I, can talk. Heck, if AEW wasn't around, they, you know, Jim Ross or Shivani would, could, would probably fit that, yeah. that bill very well. Because people forget Shivani did work for Vince McMahon for one year in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that does bring us to the main event here, the Undertaker's induction. And really, Taker, how many years did it go back? It's probably 10 years or, or, or so where we were thinking, okay, uh, Taker might be retiring this year. Maybe he'll go into the Hall of Fame next year or, or something to that effect. And I always kind of figured that it was one of those things, like they were only going to induct him after he retires. And right. I think it's mainly based on the how we all know how protective Taker was of his character. He rarely did out-of-character appearances. He did here and there. More so when he was the American Badass incarnation. But as the dead man, he really didn't do media interviews. He really wasn't seen on camera very much unless he was being the Undertaker. The only two times I can think of him in, in, in the Undertaker doing appearances like that were, were the infamous one we, we go over in, in, the, in the Vader tribute where he was on that, was it Kuwaiti television show? With Undertaker, with, with with Vader, where Vader got locked up for attacking the <laughs> the, oh, the, the host, the, yeah, the host, yeah, and then he had that little stare down as a fan attending a UFC fight with Brock Lesnar, and then of course yeah. that wound up becoming an angle when Brock came back to WWE. So right, and I think that was meant to set uh, up a match between the two. It just took longer than expected. Right, and I also think that whether it was discussed with Dana White or not. I think if it was discussed with Dana White, Dana is such a fan of wrestling. Dana would be like, go for it. Yeah. yeah More eyes Dana, on my product. That's all yeah, he's thinking, you know? Yeah. And Dana's openly admitted that he was inspired by how pro wrestling promotes itself, that uh-huh. he took a lot of that to go into UFC. So how that, their their business model was more right. than he, he modeled the UFC's business model more on the WWS than any other major sports organization. Right. And has also said that this is probably why I, 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 and I think I'm right. I wouldn't have the opinion otherwise. UFC fighters are cutting better wrestling promos nowadays than pro wrestlers are cutting. Oh, yeah. A- a- absolutely. Tell least, me Conor McGregor is not the best heel of the last 15 15- Right. Heck, even uh, even Ronda for a while could probably be, con- be considered heel of the year for during her uh, title runs in UFC. <laughs> Until MJF got a national stage, Conor McGregor was the best heel promo. <laughs> <Got> yeah. <that. laughs> I right. mean, he was, but anyway, I, I I agree with you. I also think you cannot underscore the fact that this was in Texas is another mm-hmm. reason why they chose this to be the year to induct. Yeah, because I've said it before. I can't remember if I've said it on on mic or not. But when you do happen to see Taker when he's being Mark Calloway, I, I actually feel a little weird saying the name Mark Calloway without mentioning Undertaker because he, he's another one of those guys. That you know said you are you going to walk up to uh, Ozzy Osbourne and call him John? Well, you probably you probably shouldn't walk up to the Undertaker and call him Mark. But I'd always kind of wondered what was going to happen because at the Hall of Fame, to tie back to what I was saying before about him being protective of his character, you can't do a Hall of Fame induction 
as the dead man. He would have to drop that persona and take center stage as Mark Calloway. But I've said before that I can't help but think that in real life, because Mark Calloway is so unabashedly Southern Texas, that I can't help but think maybe somewhere in his closet, he's got an oversized belt buckle that's just in the shape of Texas. Because that just, the way he talks, it just, I can't help but think he's he's got something. Like all, all, all professional respect aside, Pretty sure this is the reason why him and Stone Cold Steve Austin are buddies, because at, the, at their core, they're both Texans. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I, I I think what you're talking about, him being just Mark the man, and because he had so many different personas throughout his career, this had to be the most elaborate uh, setup I'd ever seen for an deduction. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of it goes back to, like, we were trying to make up for the two years that they didn't have an induction. Mm-hmm. So you've got... For those that haven't seen why you're listening to our review of it, and you haven't seen it, I don't know, but <laughs> they they did a typical WrestleMania extended ring entrance for Undertaker with the lighting effects and the light, the house lights going down and the music. And then behind the podium, on like valets, there's the wooden stands that men have to hang, put their clothes out on, they would wear the next day. They had all the hats, gloves, and coats of the different incarnations of the Undertaker character. Right. There's about, what, four or five of them, I think? Yeah, yeah, they went from the old gray, gray and, and black. black trench coat to the, uh, and then they had the American badass. They had kind of the uh, cult leader one, type thing, the, the kind of shredder look he had for a little bit, and then yeah, the I think they had the badass look as well. I thought they had the purple and black one in there at one at, as well. It could have been because I think that was after the feud with with the Brian Lee, the the Underfaker, whatever they. Well, that they that was them. that was a blow off of that. He had right. to take time off because he legitimately got his face broken by god rest his soul nelson fraser viscera and that's when he was wearing the 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 protective uh face mask remember yeah, which i'm pretty and sure they, they spray painted red and gave to kane a little bit later but <laughs> maybe maybe still think kane had one of the coolest looking masks in the history of wrestling but i yeah. digress <laughs> well and it, it's the other thing that can be said about taker is i don't think there is any better example of the right gimmick going to the right guy at the right time because I can't imagine anybody being a better Undertaker than Mark Calloway was. There's other people that probably could have done it. It's easy to say because they were on-screen brothers, but Glenn Jacobs probably would have been a decent Undertaker. He wouldn't have been as good, but uh, I don't think there's anybody that could have been as good as Taker. We said that about Scott Hall and Razor Ramon, that nobody could have been Razor Ramon as, as well as Scott Hall was. Nobody could have been the Undertaker better than the Undertaker. Well, bringing up Glenn Jacobs, once again, much like Vader, I got no problems with Vince inducting him because he was the longest running talent in that locker room, and it was Taker's locker room. And obviously you can't have Paul Bear do it because, unfortunately, Bill yeah. Moody's not with us anymore. He, he would have been the but best I, choice, yeah. I think everybody thought, myself included, that it was going to be Glenn Jacobs, and he would have done a good job, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, and I think he was even shown in the crowd. So, I mean, he was, he was, and, uh, he was Taker, there. Uh, Taker, gave, Taker gave him a shout-out because he, he made that joke. He's like, Mr. Mayor, he makes me call him Mr. Mayor now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to which Glenn laughed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another one of these guys that didn't do him so bad for himself once he hung the boots up. <laughs> mm-hmm. But since we are talking about Taker's career, he did have several gimmicks in the 80s and early 90s before becoming Taker. And not only that, when you look through the different personas he had over the years, all of his managers are basically Hall of Fame guys because he started as, I want to say, Texas Red in, yep. I, yep. I don't know under if it was world-class, but it was one of those Texas World-class under Matt, 
Okay. Yeah, now we we keep meaning to do the Texas Territories uh, volume. We'll get we'll get to that one of these days. But <laughs> he he was managed by Percy Pringle. At this then. point, I don't know. I don't know if you should do it. It should be a running gag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how long did we say we were going to do Harley, and then we didn't get around to doing Harley until unfortunately after he died. So right, we're we're sorry, listeners. <laughs> we're sorry, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but I believe as Texas Red, that was when he first started getting managed by Percy Pringle, who went on to become Paul Bearer. Right. Then when he was part of the skyscrapers, he was managed by Teddy Long, mm-hmm. who's now a Hall of Famer. And then as Mean Mark Callis, he was managed by a young Paulie Dangerously, a.k.a. Paul Heyman. So the, and another Paul guy, Heyman is the one that, that, that pretty much brokered the deal for him to go up to WWF. Yeah. He's the one that made the suggestion to, I think, Pritchard. And, and tell him, Mark, they don't really have anything for you. Go up there. Mm-hmm. Vince will do yeah. something with you. Right. And you know it's only a matter of time before Heyman goes to the Hall of Fame. Right. He He's one of those guys, you know, as, as fans, we always talk, we, we see guys in, in the, at the end of their career go, okay, it's not a it's not a, not a if, it's a win. And right. I, Heyman's one of those. Cena's one of those. We know Cena's going to go in eventually. We know The Rock's going to go in eventually. It's just a matter of when. Taker was one of those. It's not an if Taker's going to go in, it's going to be a when Taker goes. Okay. Now, I, I think when you get to Taker's speech, like you said, it was about 45 minutes long. This, I think, was one of the most heavily dissected induction speeches since Ric Flair's. I also think it's one of the longest. And he spent an inordinate amount of time, much like Ric Flair, individually thanking those that had had key parts of his career. Because I know he also singled out Godfather because back in the territory days, they had worked together back when... In Memphis. Uh, in I, Memphis. Think, I think he was just called Kama Mustafa back then. No, that was... No, 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 no. That was when 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 Charles Wright was the soul taker. Oh, okay. The soul. Which, no, but this was more of a of a gothic, you know, yeah. like was a version of the Undertaker. Marcus yeah. said that. I think it's maybe what inspired the Papa Shango gimmick a few years later in WWE. It's what got him high. It's what got him hired. To, there's no doubt yeah. about. It. And they were traveled up and down the road together in Memphis, and we've talked at length on many many of our episodes about how long the Tennessee Loop was. And how little the pay was. So these are just two young guys trying to live their dream. And it's when Godfather went in. We talked about how Godfather, you know, Charles Wright and Mark Calloway are legitimately really good friends outside of the business. Of course, he gave, like we just brought up, he gave a shout out to to Glenn Jacobs, which makes sense. Because Glenn has rightfully said some of the best storytelling that they've ever done in WWE was the whole Taker-Kane saga. Between enemies and friends and tag partners and just it was good stuff. He gave out shouts to Triple H, Shawn Michaels. What a lot of people noticed, and I, I noticed it right away too, he never mentioned Mick Foley. And I think even though it was more on Mick's part than it was Taker's part, that Hell in the Cell is one of the most famous matches of all time just for the brutality alone, isn't it? Yeah, and the, the, everybody remembers that bump. And if I recall correctly, that was not planned. That was an accident. If you look closely, now you the going, can see. The, going off, the, the first one going off through the table, that was planned. It, going right. through the cage, that was not planned. Right, yeah, because if you look closely, it, you kind of see this, oh, crap, look and take her face for a second. Yep, yep. He almost broke character, which was very unusual for him. Mick has gone public and said it doesn't bother him, but he does feel a little, little shited. I, I do simply because... Forget the Hell in Cell match. Mick Foley was brought in and given the character of Mankind specifically to have a guy feud with Undertaker. Jim Ross championed Mick coming in because they were out of big guys that could pose a viable threat to the Undertaker. The mystique he had built around that character. And so he championed Mick Foley to do that 
And Mick was very good at it. He mm-hmm. was very credible and believable as a threat to the Undertaker's mystique. And to 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 not mention him kind of kind of bothered me. Yeah, I don't know if it bothered you. I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think it was intentional. I honestly didn't quite think about it till I heard somebody I read somebody mentioning it. But I guess yeah, in hindsight, because that was that was a very big program. That they- and I don't remember him saying a whole lot about Paul Bear, did he? I, I think he mentioned him, but Paul Bear already had his own induction, so maybe maybe that was sure. worth, maybe that was part of the reason. Yeah, but I I, I felt he should have just personally mm-hmm. should have done more. But other than that, I'm never going to disrespect the Undertaker. He gave so much to the business that I love. He is a a, a a shining beacon of what professionalism was and is in this business. I, I, I'll give him a pass. Yeah. But if I was ever to talk to the man one-on-one, I would, because it's me, hey, bro, why did you not mention Mick Foley in your in your induction speech? And I I get this feeling he would say, in that, in that voice of his, <laughs> yeah. hey, kid, I, I just forgot, man. Can yeah. you forgive me? Yeah, my bad. <laughs> yeah. And sure, it would no, be one of those. Let's have some Jack. <laughs> yeah, and, and it would be in one of those things it's easy for me to say, because I know it's probably never happened. But when it comes to something like that, really the only person who should care is Foley. And if Foley says it's not going to bother him, then why should other people worry about it? I would think, complete pe- uh, speculation on my part, once Mark got back to Mark, there were people that were pointing that out. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a phone call mm-hmm. in private yeah, and a discussion between, because Mark has said on many occasions in shoot interviews, he enjoyed working with Mick and he likes Mick. Everybody likes Mick. Mick's a nice guy in wrestling. <laughs> and for what it's worth, I think, I, don't, I, don't, I think Mick said he enjoyed working Undertaker, didn't he? Oh, I, I think so, because uh, Taker strikes me as the type of guy that's going to be very safe to work with. Never been in the ring with him, but I know guys that have, and they say he's one of the lightest. AJ Styles said he's one of the lightest guys he's been in the ring that's with. Kind of, and that's AJ is one of the lightest guys I've been in the ring with. So what does that tell you? Right. <laughs> AJ will flat tell you, my, my, my kit can be a little bad, and, and that, that, that flying forearm, you're going to feel it. But other than that, I'm pretty light. That, that's what yeah. AJ will tell you before you get in the ring with him. And if he's saying this guy's light, yeah, he's pretty yeah. light. <laughs> and AJ now has the distinction of being Taker's final opponent. That's sure that's uh, that's definitely a badge of honor to have. I th- yeah, yeah. And AJ's another one I think we can say is definite, not not if, it's a win. Right. And, and I just, uh, <laughs> it, it was kind of similar, like, saying that we're, we're knowing that he's going to be Taker's final opponent. Kevin Owens has that now with with Austin. He he said something like, right. "I I don't have to win a world title anymore. I I just main evented WrestleMania in the last uh, match of Steve Austin's career. There, there's nothing yeah. I'm going to have that's going to top that." It, it reminds me of that my, my, one of my favorite moments in rock and roll history when the the Doors told the Ed Sullivan people they would change the words to uh, mm-hmm. "Come on, baby, light my fire," and then they didn't do it, and they get blessed out as they're coming off stage. You're you'll never play Ed Sullivan. And Jim Morrison's response, greatest of all time. What do yeah. I care? I just did a Sullivan show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you kind of have to have that rebellious attitude to be a rock mm-hmm. and roll star, but you kind of do to be a, a pro wrestler too, don't you? That's why yeah. I think there's a parallel between the two. Yeah, yeah definitely. And we, we've said before about how some of the best gimmicks are extensions of the character. I'm not saying that the dead man was an extension of Mark Calloway. I think that's one of those cases where it was a created character that he worked on to develop but you got to remember when the undertaker was first developed there was no internet there wasn't any Mm -hmm. social media or anything like that i don't think it's a character that could have been developed in a modern time but since he had already become a legend by the time the internet became a a household thing it was easier to maintain that rather than to to create it 
You but I think that. there's aspects to the character of the Undertaker that are Mark Callis. Yeah, Mark is a, he loves tats. That's obvious. He's got the full sleeves and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I do think he's a guy who, being close to, to our a little bit older than us, was a guy who grew up. He he, he liked. I I can guarantee you, being a Texas boy, I know this for a fact. He was in Southern Rock. He was in heavy metal, and he was in Outlaw Country. All those kind of have certain aspects of those styles of music kind of play to the Undertaker gimmick with the idea of death and darkness. And you know what I'm yeah. saying? So yeah. And I'd heard that that's why he had the the biker gimmick when he made his return in the early 2000s. Is that was essentially who Mark Calloway was? Because there was talk of him being one of those that would jump to WCW because he had turned down a big money offer right. from WCW. And that's why he was doing the biker gimmick, because he could show up in WCW like that. And his legal defense would be, well, this is who I am. You can't trade, right. somebody else can't trademark who I am and what I do. Uh, and but of does course, anything didn't happen, scream so. outlaw country, heavy metal, and southern rock more than the biker? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> now, going over his title history, he's, uh, I think, total eight-time world champion in WWE, counting the WWF, WWE championship and then the world championship that it kind of stemmed from the big gold belt. And then he had the undisputed title for a while as well. That totals eight world titles. I don't know if you could say he had that career-defining world title reign that somebody like a Bret Hart or a Hulk Hogan had, but I would argue that The Undertaker didn't need one because he quickly became yeah. an attraction in his own right. And I think it's one of the reasons why him only coming around once a year for for the last 10 years of his career, I think it worked because, again, it goes back to the Andre the Giant thing. If he's always around, you eventually have to beat him. So don't have him around all the time. You don't need to put the belt on him because he is such an attraction on his own that you don't need to put a title on him. You can put the title on, on somebody else, and then that's two big attractions you have rather than one. Did him and Kane ever hold the world tag titles? Yeah, I think they might have even held the WCW tag titles during that invasion oh, thing. Go. But I think everybody held a WCW title during that invasion run. So I think somebody had done the math and it's like they averaged like 1.7 title changes per show during wow. the invasion, which is pretty ridiculous. The career defining moment for me is probably, there's probably a tie for two. His involvement with Hulk Hogan losing the belt, which eventually led to Ric Flair winning it and positioning Ric Flair as the top guy in the WWF, that he was a key component in that, which from the beginning of his run in the WWF made him a, a major player. Mm -hmm. And then the other major run, I would say, is he was the leader of the corporate ministry, at least in ring, of course. Eventually, Mr. McMahon was the overall puppet master. But that makes him the leader of the top heel faction in the middle of the Attitude Era, the last big money era for the company. Mm -hmm. Those two, I think, define him the most. Yeah. That's yeah, just and, my opinion. Yeah, and that made him unquestionably the top in-ring heel at the time as well. Yes, it did. It did. Yeah. The top heel was Mr. McMahon, but right. The Rock was ascending at the time and would come to be, I think, equal footing with The Undertaker for the top in-ring heel. But until Rock was ready, it was Taker. Uh, right. You also cannot talk about the career of The Undertaker without bringing up the WrestleMania streak. And that's something I think that had evolved organically. I don't right. think it was intended to happen. And then somebody just noticed, hey, wait a minute. Undertaker's had 10 matches at WrestleMania and he's won them all. We we, yeah. we can work something out with this. And then it began to be a thing where every WrestleMania, there were three things that I was waiting for. Aside from whatever the main event's going to be, what, what title right. matches are there going to be. 
and there was who's going to be wrestling Taker because that's a special mm-hmm. spot in the card. What outfit is Rey Mysterio going to wear? Because he usually has a custom outfit for for WrestleMania. It's, it's, and off the comic book, it's been exactly yeah. Whether it's Flash or Joker or whatever. And then there was what's John Cena's entrance going to be? Because John Cena always has an epic entrance at Mania. My but, my fourth mm-hmm. one personally would be is is Shawn Michaels going to do his usual and steal the show and be the showstopper, Mister WrestleMania. Right, and that fits with Taker as well because he had those two match of the year candidates with with Shawn. And really, yep. what's well, it, three matches, I guess, with Hunter, because there were those yeah. four manias where he had two matches with Hunter and two matches with Michaels. Yep, uh, yep, yep. It's much like when, when now, that, well, not so much now, but for years, there was always three things in the Royal Rumble. You were wondering who was going to last the longest, who was going to eliminate the most people, and what craziness was Kofi Kingston going to pull off to avoid being eliminated at some point. Right. This is an example of how good Vince is at branding his big pay-per-views. The fact yeah. that we can sit there and name stuff like, you know? Yeah. And the fact the Undertaker is a major key part in one of those things we listed should show the importance for how he was for, for a long, long time. Yeah. Now, we'll we'll wind things up here because I know we played a promo from Scott Steiner earlier on. It's was, it was him being Big Papa Pump. But I th- thought it'd be interesting to look into the past as far as it comes to Undertaker. I'm going to play a promo here of when he was Mean Mark Callis in WCW and when he was managed by Teddy Long as a heel. So this is a pre-Undertaker Undertaker. Now what you people are watching is what happened to Hawk and Animal when they tried to interfere in the theater or alone connection. Now you see what they did with that chair? They left the Road Warriors' brains splattered all over the canvas. Now, it's going to be worse than that in a Chicago street fight because you can bring anything and you can do anything. So there's no telling what I might bring and there's no telling what I might do. Now, Mean Mark, just before I get you to talk about the low-down, dirty, stinking Road Warriors, I want to say free James Brown. I'm a total supporter of it, and you people better get behind me. Ow! Tell him, Mean Mark. Hey, Corpus Christi was nothing. The Clash, what's going to happen to you in that Chicago street fight? It ain't for the weak of heart. Yes, believe it or not, that was The Undertaker in the last... Yeah, it remind, reminds different. me of how freaking entertaining Teddy Long was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty the whole, sure... The whole free James Brown at the end just had me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure there were not the Road Warriors' brains uh, splattered, because I, I don't think that would have made TV. No, no, uh, no. Yeah. But but when we talk about four big... Just yep. slamming into each other. Yep. That is the epitome of that. Yep, four-man hoss fights, so... That's going to bring us to the end here, uh, this look at the 2022 WWE Hall of Fame. I know we went a little longer than usual, but all of those three main careers of Taker, Vader, and the Steiners, we could have done multiple, maybe we will, we could probably do multiple episodes just on Taker, on his different personas. We already did well, one on... Done a tribute on Vader. <laughs> Vader, yeah, and we could probably do multiple ones on, on the Steiners as well. So uh, anything in closing that you want to want to mention as far as the, the class goes? No, no, just this was every year I look forward to the, the Hall of Fame because I am an old timer now. I'm old school and my mentality have been since I got into the business. I enjoy our review because it gives me an excuse to go back and watch it again. I I, I think I've, I've said during the course of this 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 episode what my gripes were and, and, and what I saw as the highlights. Just if you have any comments or complaints or questions about anything I said. I can always be reached at on Twitter at crazytrain_jb. underscore JB. That is pretty much my handle across all media platforms. 
I have noticed that on our Facebook page for here, Classic Wrestling Memories, we have really been been picking up likes and follows by leaps and bounds, especially over, what, about the last three weeks, Seth? Yeah, we've gotten several hundred new likes in the past month. I, I think it's up like, I think it's over a thousand percent as far as what we usually do. And we just passed 1,500 likes and we had passed a uh, thousand likes about six weeks prior to that. So it's very humbling to see this influx of interest. We want to thank each and every one of these people that has liked it, liked us. And if you're listening, let us know what you like, what you don't like. ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. And then we're on Facebook at Classic Wrestling Memories. If you haven't already liked us there, give us a review. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. If there's something you want us to talk about. Like I said, really the only uh, rule is we're not going to do anything past the Monday Night War Attitude Era. Anything past WCW and ECW closing. Anything before that, I think is fair game. And, and we have so many things we have not touched on that I am not worried at all about running out of material uh, from the history of wrestling to cover that will be interesting to research and who that I think you as the listeners and wrestling fans will enjoy hearing us talk about. So I, I don't see any reason why that would change. little interesting side note, Seth knows this already. This is not classic wrestling. It's current wrestling. For those that also follow my personal Facebook page, you will have discovered that I have come out of retirement, and I am actually back in the ring. Um, very limited on what I can do because of my health issues and my age. But I, I have I've never stopped helping to train young wrestlers. I did that even once the doctor said no more bumping, no more, no more wrestling. But I am now tagging with a young wrestler down in Georgia that I've been helping train. I'm just kind of was asked by the promoter to be the veteran in the ring that could kind of direct traffic. That's what I'm doing. I, I, I don't plan to take any risks, but it, as I like to say all the time, wrestling is a dance, but it's not ballet. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. But if you go on there, you will see me posting posters of shows, maybe some po- recorded promos of some of the other guys on the show are going to be on. So uh, wish me luck. And if you're a spiritual type, pray for me that I don't kill myself because I am. I'm not spring chicken anymore, <laughs> but I'm having fun. Um, I'm enjoying helping the young guys live their dreams. Just trying to give back a little bit. I was only giving back to the business through this podcast, but now I'm doing it twofold. So I'll, I, it gave me a lot of enjoyment as a fan. It gave me enjoyment and paid my bills as a participant. And so now I'm still just trying to give back a little. Absolutely. No. If you're listening to us for the first time, uh, definitely welcome. We can be found on all the major podcast platforms. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, you name it. Just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, you'll find us. Like I said, give us a follow, give us a review. And uh, we're always open to feedback. As I like to say, I welcome any feedback, especially when it's genuine. I'd rather hear something that's genuinely negative than falsely positive. So. With that, I'm going to shut down the power here in the Classic Wrestling Memory Studios. We'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. 
The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of a1-wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Tonight, the soul taker there. Dustin Rhodes, you're a big, bad cowboy. Been going through everybody. Well, let me tell you something, boy. I've been going through people, too. There is no law when it comes to the soul taker. I'll go through you as easy as the rest. Master of pain against Dutch Mantel Wednesday night. <laughs> Dutch, the master plan is just about ready to be fulfilled, man. Wednesday night, Evans, you're going down as the wrath of the master of pain. I don't forget a thing, Dutch, and you won't either. Wednesday night, Evansville Coliseum tomorrow.